This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're here today. Thomas, we got a great show today. Looking forward to it. But, you know, everybody's talking about this third dose related to the Pfizer vaccine. Well, this is the most important change and development, obviously, in the course that we've had this year relative to the treatment of COVID. So let's go back and revisit what Dr. John Carlo told us a couple of weeks ago about this, what we're calling the third dose. Steve, I think that's an important clarification, too. Absolutely. I think you'll see Dr. Carlo says it's different than a booster. What I recommend for those that are thinking about whether they are a candidate for a third dose is to talk to your physician, your health provider, and really go through that conversation uh, very carefully. At this point, you know, the, the sort of the ways you want to look at it, I guess, is it does not look to be harmful to have a third dose. The, the real question is whether there's a benefit, whether your, your body has you know, developed its uh, immune response adequately so that that third dose is perhaps not necessary. The, the recommendation is to try to stay with the same uh, vaccine. So in other words, if you did get the first two doses with Pfizer, it's, it's, it's best to stay with Pfizer. The options are, one is, is it is okay to wait. Um, they, they did point out that it's, it's not urgent to, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis uh, get that third dose. But they also said, saying in recommendations by the CDC is that it's, it's permissible to go ahead and um, perhaps use the Moderna if you started with Pfizer. We think that that is okay. But there's a couple caveats to that. Number one is there, there's no recommendations to mix the non-mRNA vaccines. In other words, uh, there's n- no recommendation to mix the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine with either the Pfizer or Moderna. So it, it's sort of a mixed message a little bit, but I, I think there is an important distinction about you know, trying to do the best to keep with the same, uh, the same one you started with. That's Dr. John Carlo with a reminder of something that's being talked about quite a bit in the news these days. Dr. Carlo is chair of the Texas Medical Association's Legislative Council in Austin. And we're going to switch gears into a couple of non-COVID topics. And first, we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Waldrop. He's a general surgeon at Medical City Dallas. We're going to be talking about something that we need to take care of, but we don't think about, probably hardly ever, our gallbladder. Dr. Waldrop, great having you on the show. And let's start with the obvious question. How do we know if something is affecting our gallbladder? Sure. Well, classic gallbladder pain will be uh, localized up to the right upper quadrant. So the right side of the abdomen on the right underneath the rib rib cage. Usually it comes on 30 minutes after eating a meal. Generally, fatty meals will make it worse or are more likely to cause the pain can sometimes be kind of just right in between the ribs, kind of in the mid, what we call the mid-epigastrium, or kind of right underneath your sternum, um, and sometimes can radiate to the back, and usually associated with that pain is some nausea and vomiting. With abdominal pain in general, we kind of try to break it down into the four different quadrants of the abdomen, and so the, the classic pain for uh, gallbladder disease is in, the, is in the right upper quadrant. 
What's your recommendation if someone is experiencing that kind of pain? Should they call you or should they go to their primary care provider first? Generally, uh, we'd recommend that they go to their primary care provider, assuming the pain is coming and going and it's resolving within a few hours, um, then seeing their primary care provider and telling them what's going on. And uh, the kind of one of the first steps is obtaining an ultrasound of the gallbladder to look for stones. That would probably be the most appropriate course. If someone has pain that's lasting more than four hours or they're starting to have fevers or significant nausea and vomiting, then uh, you know, at that point I would recommend going to the emergency room to be evaluated. You know, when you have pain uh, in your gallbladder, is it generally caused by gallstones or can you have pain without the stones? So that's a good question. You can um, Generally, it is caused with gallstones. And even um, sometimes people have classic symptoms and an ultrasound won't show any stones, but they're still having that classic uh, right upper quadrant pain that is after fatty meals. Um, so sometimes we even repeat the ultrasound to take another look, or uh, sometimes they'll have sludge, which is uh, kind of the precursor to stones. I mean, you can kind of think of it as sand being the precursor to rocks, is that the sludge can cause some of those same issues as well. And then finally, there is some uh, times when the gallbladder just isn't working well for one, one reason or another, and that pain can be caused without stones. But the, mo- the most common cause is having gallstones or sludge. You know, if one of our listeners is experiencing pain, and as you examine them, are there non-surgical treatments that you can treat gallstones and the gallbladder without surgery? Sure. Um, there is a medication, which is Ursodiol, for trying to dissolve gallstones. Now, that being said, it's not a very... It, it's not commonly used in medicine because we have a very effective surgery to remove the gallbladder. And because the medication takes a long time, can take a long time to dissolve the stones, and then if you come off the medication, the stones can are likely to come back and cause you issues. So between the kind of the length of time it takes for that medication to work, and the uh, you could still be a risk for having complications related to your gallstones, and then just the fact that it would need to be a, a long, more of a long-term medication. We we generally recommend surgery for treatment of gallbladders or gallstones. Dr. Waldrop, I was curious what the surgical procedures are now for gallbladder and is robotics in this space now? Well, laparoscopic cholecystectomy has kind of become the the standard for removal of the gallbladder over the past 15 to 20 years. Um, Robotic surgery is kind of the next uh, step after laparoscopic surgery. It's generally the same type of surgery, we still insufflate the uh, abdomen and blow it up with carbon dioxide and make small incisions. Uh, the advantages of the robot are uh, it's kind of like operating with hands on the inside, So, and the visualization is enhanced. So between those two kind of benefits of the robot, the surgery is just safer and easier to recover from. You know, when you mention it's easier to recover, that's a great question. If our listeners have to have surgery for the gallbladder, and I know each person's a little different, but generally speaking, what would be kind of the downtime that you would have related to your surgery? Sure. Well, most gallbladder surgeries are day surgery. So you'd come in the morning of surgery, have your surgery, and be able to go home that night. 
most surgeons will prescribe narcotics for their patients uh, when they leave just to have uh, for pain control when, we get, when they go home. And I would say that most people take their pain medicine for probably three to five days after surgery. Um, you know, obviously some less, some more. Everyone's different. But uh, that's kind of what you can expect. And then with this surgery, one of the incisions is a little bit larger to get the gallbladder out. And because of that, we kind of close the strength layer down of the uh, abdomen. And so we generally tell people to wait four weeks until they start doing any uh, heavy lifting more than 10 or 15 pounds. This is Dr. Kevin Waldrop. He's a general surgeon at Medical City Dallas. We're talking about our gallbladder. More on this, and then we'll be talking about our heart at the bottom of the hour on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Kevin Waldrop, who is a general surgeon at Medical City Dallas. We're talking about taking good care of our gallbladder. Steve? You know, if you just kind of look in general at patient profile, if you have an individual that's fairly healthy, exercise regularly, eats a pretty sensible diet, are they more likely not to have gallstones or does that have any impact? For example, if you're obese, are you more likely to have gallbladder problems? Yes, definitely obesity is a risk factor for having uh, gallstones and having gallbladder problems. There's many different components on what causes gallstones. There's definitely a hereditary component. Um, people with a first-degree relative that has gallstones are more likely to have gallstones. Um, but obesity is definitely a, uh, a risk factor, as well as uh, rapid weight loss is another risk factor for developing gallstones. So eating a healthy diet is uh, one way to mitigate some of that risk. One thing that I kind of appreciate is that coffee has actually been shown to kind of possibly decrease the formation of gallstones. So uh, I can appreciate that. You know, uh, you just mentioned something I hadn't thought about. So if someone went on a crash diet and they really are trying to lose weight and they're doing it maybe not really under a doctor's supervision, they could develop gallstones? Yes, that's correct. Um, you know, rapid weight loss more than probably a kilogram a, uh, a week would be one of the factors that could cause gallstones. Um, we do see it fairly commonly after bariatric surgery with the rapid weight loss that goes with uh, a bypass or a sleeve. Uh, we do see people uh, are more likely to develop gallstones after that rapid weight loss. So yes, a, a, a rapid diet and significant weight loss on your own could predispose you to gallstones. Wow. In your opinion, are there any specific foods you would recommend people stay away from? I know you mentioned fatty uh, substances, et cetera. So I didn't know if there were other foods that you kind of say, you may want to limit your intake of this. No, there's nothing really from a diet standpoint that uh, has been identified as causing gallstones per se. Um, just the, the American diet probably predisposes people to developing gallstones. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, you mentioned something else in one of your answers that I think is important for the listeners. So if your parents or grandparents had gallbladder issues or gallstones, it could be 
all tends to be sometimes hereditary? Yes, it's not 100%, but um, even you know, looking at twins, I mean, the, the rate that of correlation between like two identical twins of having gallstones disease is 25 to 50%. So it's not a absolute that if your uh, first degree relative had gallstone issues that you will, but it definitely predisposes you and makes you more likely to. Okay, I got to ask I got to ask a beginner question here, but so how is it that our gallbladder is expendable? <laughs> so uh, the gallbladder is just a, a reservoir for bile. And so as our liver is making bile, which helps digest fatty foods, it's constantly making that bile. And when you're not eating a fatty meal, some of the bile gets deposited in the gallbladder. When you have surgery to remove the gallbladder, your body doesn't have quite the, the same kick when it will of secreting bile into your digestive tract to help digest the fat, but your body will just make a little bit more bile all the time and uh, can still digest the fatty meals without the gallbladder. Is it just as efficient? Uh, that's a good question. It's probably not as efficient. There are some people will have a little bit of diarrhea and especially if you're eating really fatty meals after having their gallbladder out may have some diarrhea, but generally actually our bodies compensates for that. And most people are live just fine without their gallbladder with no real long-term issues. So is the gallbladder, does it have a lifespan? Not necessarily. I think the biggest thing that causes gallbladder dysfunction is just having the stones that develop inside the gallbladder. And then just the irritation of those stones to the gallbladder can cause chronic inflammation, which will kind of decrease the lifespan of the gallbladder, if you will. It seems to me that this whole thing ties back to diet a lot. Yes, the Western diet with high in carbs and high in fat is predisposes people, especially by causing obesity, which can kind of change the, the makeup of the bile and predisposes towards stones. So eating a healthy diet is uh, probably the one best thing that people can do to try and lower the risk of developing gallstones. And then let me flip it over to the other side. Does that necessarily mean that if you ate a vegetarian or a Mediterranean or salad all the time, would that help your gallbladder necessarily? And then, of course, setting the genetics stuff aside, right? Sure. So uh, not necessarily. I've definitely seen people or, and uh, who have been very healthy and very conscious about their diet and exercise, and they have still developed gallstones. And even despite trying to do all the uh, non-operative management have eventually kind of ended up in the operating room because their pain has just gotten to the point where they couldn't deal with it anymore. So it does not necessarily protect you, but it, it is the one thing that can kind of be done to lower that risk. And if you're having those kinds of pains after you eat, other than, you know, a handful of anti-acids, is there anything you can do at home obviously change your diet, but let's say you don't, you're bad one night, pizza and French fries, here we go. <laughs> and is there anything you can do to mitigate or offset it a little bit? Probably the taking some Motrin or Advil, um, ibuprofen, they're all kind of the same name for that type of drug, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, is probably one of the few things um, that you can take at home to try and mitigate some of that pain as it'll kind of lessen the inflammation from the the gallbladder as it's becoming irritated from that from the stones. 
Now, let's say that the stone is not going to become something worthy of coming to see you. It's just going to you know, have its moment. How long is that time before the stone is gone and we're on to the next meal? Most patients with what's called biliary colic or pain related to their gallbladder, the pain will generally last up to two hours, maybe four at the longest. After that point, if the pain is persisting longer than that, that's when we generally recommend people go to the emergency department. But the, the typical pain lasts anywhere between two to four hours and then will resolve uh, completely. And then, you know, a lot of us, Steve, have you ever had gallbladder pain that you know of in the past? No, I have not. I, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I had appendicitis, which is entirely different, but I've never had gallbladder pain. So I never have either. So is this one of those kinds of things that if it comes on and then you start to have it, it progresses? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So a lot of people will have gallstones. If we look at across the population, somewhere around 10% of people will have gallstones. Obviously, depends varies based on ethnicity and males versus females. But looking at a, a kind of general number for the population, about 10% would have gallstones. Now, not all those gallstones are causing problems. And so if gallstones are identified, we don't necessarily, and if you're not having pain, then we don't necessarily need to take out your gallbladder. But if you do start having the pain, then that's kind of a precursor that you're more likely to develop some of the more severe complications from uh, your gallstones, such as blocking the main duct that leads out of the liver or causing pancreatitis or just other things that might uh, cause you to be uh, hospitalized. So kind of once you start having that pain is when we generally recommend removing the gallbladder. Dr. Waldrop, you did a great job. I always like to ask one final question. Sure. You know, our listeners uh, have certainly learned a lot from you today. What questions should Thomas and I should have asked you that we didn't? Or is there a message you'd like to convey to our listeners about gallbladder or gallstones? Sure. Uh, The one thing I wanted to kind of touch on with uh, with the new robotic surgery is that this new technology that we have, we have the ability to give some dyes which light up the, the main duct that leads out of the liver, which will possibly hasn't been proven yet in large studies, but my suspicion is once we have large enough studies that it will show that the gallbladder remover, removal surgery is even safer than it has been in the past. And the robot also offers some new techniques where we can try and minimize scarring or kind of change where a patient's scars might be if they're concerned about cosmetic issues. Dr. Kevin Waldrop, General Surgeon, Medical City, Dallas. Thank you for those tips and reminders to take care of our gallbladder. And when we come back, we're going to move up to our heart and talk to Dr. Brian Lima, who is the Surgical Director of Heart Transplantation at Medical City Heart Hospital, next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Thanks for joining us today on The Human Side of Healthcare. You know, we love new technologies in healthcare, especially ones that affect something as important and vital as your heart. We could not have a better individual with us than Dr. Brian Lima. He's the Surgical Director of Heart Transplantation 
at Medical City Heart Hospital. Dr. Lima, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, Dr. Lima, we know you're a dedicated physician, but each of us has something that really gets us up in the morning and gets us going. Why are you so passionate about heart failure? Well, it's not only what I've dedicated my professional medical career to, but it's personal in that I see what happens on a weekend, uh, weekend, week-out basis uh, when heart failure is not taken as seriously as it should be. And unfortunately, I think um, in today's society, heart failure, even though it's more deadly than most cancers, it's still not taken with the same amount of uh, serious tone or concern. And as a result, many people suffer and die premature deaths because of it. You know, many of our listeners may go, well, what exactly is heart failure? Could you explain to our listeners what exactly, from a medical point of view, are you describing? Uh, In its simplest definition, it's when the heart can no longer deliver enough blood to the body. Uh, And that can be for a number of reasons. It could be from longstanding coronary disease or other forms of heart disease that the common end result many times can be the, a weakened heart that just is not able to deliver the blood that the rest of the body needs. You know, that's a great explanation. And so as we think in terms of heart failure, the way you just defined it, what would you say are some of the common misconceptions related to heart failure? Well, uh, it's not viewed as something as deadly or imminently deadly as something like cancer. And so often many patients uh, see their physicians, they're told they may have uh, have heart failure, congestive heart failure, or they get hospitalized because their heart failure flares up. And there's no escalation. Uh, it, it, there's not this um, sense of urgency to say, well, maybe we should make sure that we're covering everything that you, you know, maybe we should send you to a heart failure specialist to be sure that maybe there isn't another therapy uh, that we're not thinking about. So I think one misconception is it's not um, a deadly disease or as imminently a deadly disease as other um, illnesses we think of, such as cancer. So as you see different patients and they have different reasons why they're experiencing heart failure, For our listeners, what are some of the treatment options that are available to deal with heart failure? Well, like any other disease, there's different severities. So in the early stages of heart failure, it may just be medications, uh, medications that are prescribed by your physician that are aimed at trying to keep your body optimized and your heart failure optimized. Unfortunately, in many instances, the heart failure can progress and medications alone cannot adequately take care of the of the disease in which case then we have to start thinking about some form of what i call heart replacement therapy Uh, what are we going to do to take over the work of this failing heart that can no longer sustain the body so that could either be a heart transplant or it could be a implantable mechanical device an artificial heart pump that basically serves to take over the work of the heart When you put in the artificial mechanical device, is that something that's permanent or do you have to replace it, say, in a few years? 
these devices, uh, uh, officially termed left ventricular assist devices, LVADs, have really, really come a long way, and they um, theoretically can function forever, meaning for the rest of the individual patient's life. So on the one hand, they don't need to be replaced. They are also potentially a bridge to an eventual transplant. So it's not something that necessarily means the only option, but for many people that are either too sick to wait for a heart um, or for a, a number of other reasons are not heart transplant candidates, it's an excellent, excellent uh, alternative therapy. You know, when you think in terms of if, if one of your patients is really in need to have a heart transplant, as far as finding a donor, having a match, how difficult is that? Well, it's actually another area of the field that's getting better in that we are now exploring with technologies uh, different uh, ways to look at donors or consider donors that we couldn't uh, in the past. So I would say that um, in current practice, while yes, it's, it's not a, a slam dunk to get donors, we're limited more uh, as a field by the number of patients coming to get evaluated for a transplant early enough that they can benefit from the therapy or actually be eligible for the therapy. I think the problem is we see people too late more often than we, we would like. So what I think I uh, am hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if people put off getting treatment and if people put off coming to you, there can be a point where you reach that you're not eligible to be a good candidate for a heart transplant. Is that correct? That is correct. And the simple analogy is, if, uh, and again, not to just overuse the comparison with cancer, but I think it just resonates with so many people. It'd be the same thing as saying, well, you know, the, the, my doctor discovered that I have a cancer. Well, in most cases, that would mean oh, you're seeing an oncologist, you're making sure, okay, if it's an early stage, can we treat this? Can we take the tumor out, et cetera, et cetera? You would never hear anybody say, yeah, well, I feel fine. Even though I have cancer, I feel fine. I'm just going to wait this out and see because I don't know about all these treatments. I'm just going to wait this out. And then it becomes metastatic, right? It spreads. And then when you finally decide to get it looked at or you're referred, then you can't really get any treatment. So that's how I look at heart failure. It doesn't play by the rules. It could, it could progress unexpectedly to you're walking and talking one week and the next week you're in an ICU on dialysis and on a, on a respirator, and we want to avoid that. That's, that's really where, where I'm passionate about and try to, to spread the word about that. Is heart failure something that can really strike anyone, or is it predominantly based on age? Well, for the most part, yes, it is a disease that we tend to see in older folks who've maybe had chronic heart conditions, but we also uh, regularly see younger patients, patients that uh, may have a familial heart uh, disorder, something that runs in a family uh, that makes them have premature heart failure. We even sometimes see, you know, in the era of COVID, there are other viral illnesses that can uh, unfortunately impact, you know, previously healthy uh, folks with no previous heart history. And for some reason, the virus attacks the heart. So we, it's not that we do see that from time to time. So um, I would say it's, yes, predominantly older patients, but for sure something we do see uh, in some younger uh, patients as well. 
You know, I know you mentioned the virus, and you can have a virus, not just the COVID virus, but viruses that uh, do heart damage. And I certainly understand as you go through the aging process. Do you have any advice or information you could give our listeners as to someone who maybe is young in their 20s and 30s and healthy, advice for them to keep their heart healthy so hopefully in later years they don't deal with heart failure? Sure. Uh, There's actually the American Heart Association has a very good program, a preventive program that they advertise called Life's Simple 7. And it's seven things that all of us can do uh, on our behalf to try to minimize the risk of heart disease, period. And those things range from not smoking to maintaining a good heart-healthy diet, uh, making sure you see your physician on a regular basis so that, um, you know, on a yearly, for your yearly checkup to make sure that if for some reason you do have high blood pressure or high high blood sugar, things of that nature, that, you know, those are uh, controlled and treated. So I think there are certainly some preventive measures we can all take to minimize the risk of heart disease. You know, I know this may sound like a crazy question because I'm not a clinician, but let's say you have a heart problems such as AFib, and you really don't see a professional and don't treat it, could something like that eventually lead to heart failure? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, aside from the the very common problem uh, that AFib can cause stroke uh, clots forming in the heart that that make their way to the brain, uh, the heart can, you know, when it's moving, beating so fast, so irregularly for such a long, you know, protracted period of time, the heart can develop a a form of heart failure that's caused by this chronic uh, irregular fast rhythm. You know, I've asked you a lot of questions, but I want to pivot just a minute to see if Thomas has some questions that he would like to ask. Thanks, Steve. You know, I have AFib, so I have what we're talking about here. So this is always of interest to me. Here's a question for you, though. How would somebody know if their body is not getting enough blood and blood oxygen from their heart? Well, some of the common symptoms that uh, you can have with heart failure are pretty general. So weakness, shortness of breath, shortness of breath with exertion, um, having swelling in the body. So having swelling, uh, swelling of the legs, things like that. Um, waking up in the middle of the night, shorter breath, or not being able to lie flat completely uh, because you get shorter breath. So you, sometimes patients will talk about having to stack two or three pillows in order to you know, rest comfortably because without that, they start to have shortness of breath. So those are some of the symptoms that uh, we, we often hear about. You know, when you get a chance to spend a few minutes with a cardiologist, you take it. But when you get to spend time with somebody who is the surgical director of heart transplantation at Medical City Heart Hospital, Dr. Brian Lima, you really take advantage of it. We'll do that next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Brian Lima. He's the Surgical Director of Heart Transplantation at Medical City Heart Hospital. Before the break, we were talking about this relatively new device that is revolutionizing heart treatment, especially when heart failure is involved. So, Dr. Lima, in treatment now, how prominent is this new device? 
Well, it's be you know if you think about the math of it, um, there's across the United States every year somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 heart transplants are done. But if you actually do the math and see how many patients have quote advanced heart failure that would theoretically benefit from a heart transplant, that number is more like 300,000. So the supply and demand issue is 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 pretty significant, and these LVADs, these left ventricular assist devices, are, have really revolutionized heart failure care because they provide a very good alternative to heart transplant. Uh, in the latest studies with the latest device, particularly the HeartMate 3, which is sort of the new, the new age device, the outcomes with that device were on par with heart transplant. So what I tell patients is, Really, the only life-limiting kind of, you know, uh, quality of life-limiting issue with these devices is that they're not wireless, so there is a battery uh, and a cord that exits the body, but all that really limits is your ability to uh, submerge in water. Short of that, you can take showers and you can do everything else. I mean, I've had uh, LVAD patients uh, have very active lifestyles, play basketball with their children, travel, uh, ride motorcycles, play golf, et cetera, et cetera. So you can have great quality of life. Um, and um, on the flip side, you don't have to take rejection drugs as you would for a transplant to prevent the, your body from rejecting it. So there are some pros and cons there, but it's something literally we can take off the shelf. Um, you don't have to wait for a heart. And so it's definitely something that can that has in, in many ways filled that need, uh, that need for, for therapies for patients that can't get a heart transplant or are too sick to wait for one. Wow, this is one of those medical technology stories that's awesome to hear. It truly is. Mm-hmm. So can people have a mostly active life back after this device? They absolutely can, and um, like I said, really, uh, short of not being able to get into a tub of water or a swimming pool, they can pretty much do everything else. So you trade that for having your life back. Exactly, exactly. And then what are the downsides, the risks? Well, uh, the technology is still um, not perfect in that um, you're still having to take a blood thinner to be on the device. So the same medication that many patients like yourself with AFib are on, like Coumadin. So you do have to be on a blood thinner. That's one. Number two, there's always that theoretical risk that that external part of the device, the cord, you know, for lack of a better word, the power cord could get infected. Um, The rates are pretty low, but it's a constant thing to have to keep an eye on and things like that. And, you know, the surgery itself is uh, to get the implant placed hinges also on how, how bad off are you when you finally get the surgery. And it kind of alludes to what I was uh, discussing earlier is not waiting until it's too late. So ideally we like to get uh, patients in in as good of a condition as possible, kind of get them ready for the big game, if you will. Um, So we don't like doing the patient, the the surgery, it's a big surgery on folks that are really, really critically ill. So ideally we want to get patients earlier so that they benefit from the surgery and we minimize the risk of the surgery. What size device are we talking about? 
It's about, it's a device that can really fit in the palm of your hand. So an important uh, distinction here is that it assists the heart. It takes over the work of the left ventricle of the heart. So you're not actually removing the heart. You're basically attaching this device and it's very small. It can fit inside the, you know, the sack of the heart that the heart sits in. So unlike, you know, three or four generations ago of these devices that were really massive things that was, that were difficult to fit inside the body, these are pretty small. Do they control the rhythm also? So in other words, would this be a rhythmic device to prevent future heart failure or is that a little bit too far ahead? Are we getting too far ahead of the curve there? It unfortunately doesn't. It basically just almost bypasses the main pumping chamber of the heart. It basically drains the blood out of that chamber and then redirects it downstream into the aorta. So it essentially just takes over the pumping power of the heart. So the heart no longer has to work as hard or anywhere near as hard as it did before. So it makes sure that there's enough blood being delivered to the rest of the body. And and so in essence, it doesn't actually impact the rhythm. So what we're talking about here in layperson's terms is not enough oxygen going to all parts of the body. Is that correct? That's correct. So when the heart is not doing what it needs to do, all the organs of the body suffer. Your kidneys, your liver, your brain, uh, your muscle tissue, everything. So if we walk this back, when you want to go get that next load of French fries and vanilla shake, whatever. (laughs) Right. think Think about the long game, right? That's right. Because at the end of that down there is not only affecting your belly, it's also affecting potentially every organ in your body. That's a, that's a great way to sum it up. It really does because, um, you know, your, your organs can work great so long as they're getting enough blood supply. Um, and the heart really is at the center of that. We're all aware, and certainly we don't need a sermon about all the factors, right? The smoking, mm-hmm. the diet, et cetera. What value, though, do you place on stress? The link between stress and overall wellness and cardiovascular uh, health cannot be, you know, denied. There's definitely a linkage there. And I think we're still beginning to unravel what all of that entails, how, how much of a linkage there is. But there's there's definitely something there. So I think um, when you're stressed, you, you not only um, are putting your body through a lot, but you also have a tendency to maybe do some of those things that you're not supposed to for your overall heart health. Maybe you're smoking more. Maybe you're not sleeping as well. Maybe you're not exercising or um, your diet is off. You know, you're, you're, you're eating not the way you're supposed to. So stress can really um, unravel a lot of the, the things that you could do to uh, minimize your risk of heart disease. Dr. Lima, what is the difference between heart failure and congestive heart failure? Yes. I mean, they're interchangeable descriptors, but yes, they're, I'll, I'll regard them as the same. Congestive, I mean, I think heart failure can, causes congestion. And so if you throw in the congestive, but it, I think um, heart failure is uh, probably sums it up. And many folks have really kind of not even, it used to be, you know, like in medicine, everything has an abbreviation, right? It's like alphabet soup. And so when you're describing heart failure, it used to be CHF, CHF. What you see now often is just HF. <laughs> People have dropped the C just to kind of, it's, it, 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 it assumes that it concludes congestion. Dr. Lima, how has COVID-19 really made treatment of 
cardiovascular issues more complicated, especially this Delta variant? You know, I would say that the waters have been muddied a little bit more of late because now you have this new variant and we what we saw with the previous you know version of, of, of COVID before a vaccine existed is a I don't want to call it a huge proportion but a number of people coming in with COVID related heart issues shock etc definitely affecting how they were clot clotting their blood so clotting too aggressively so then you know you have strokes and you have other things related to this overly aggressive, overly active clotting cascade. I'm concerned that with this new variant that we're going to start to see a resurgence of some of those things again, uh, more people showing up with that. Um, conversely, we're going to also run into the same issue we felt uh, before is that because our hospitals were so full with COVID, a bunch of people with heart disease didn't make it into the hospital. So we started a dramatic, dramatic drop in people coming in with heart attacks, people needing emergency, you know, procedures for their heart attacks, and they just didn't come into the hospital. And so my fear is that we're going to start to see that again, that phenomena again, where our hospitals are filling up again now with the Delta variant and people with heart disease are not going to come in. And so we're going to start to face that, that problem again. And this has been Dr. Brian Lima. Thank you so much for great information. He's the Surgical Director of Heart Transplantation at Medical City Heart Hospital. Great interview. Steve? Absolutely. We'll see you next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.